This program is brought to you by Israel Restoration Ministries. What are you doing Sunday nights? Come join Friendship with God radio Bible teacher Tom Cantor of the Friendship with God Fellowship Church every Sunday night at 5.30 p.m. at The Vine at 9336 Abraham Way, Santee, California. Watch and listen live around the world to Tom Cantor Sunday evening on YouTube.com by searching for Friendship with God Fellowship or by going to our homepage at friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org. Welcome to Friendship with God with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. Today's message and previous messages can be listened to or downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org. Believe me, the reason for going to the Jews with the gospel is because of a burden is because of a burden that Paul wrote of in Romans 9.1, Romans 9.1, when Paul said, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart, for I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, written by a man who was constantly running away from being killed by them. He was hunted like a prey. And he wrote that, I will go to hell if they can go to heaven. That was his heart. And he said, it's true. The Holy Ghost is standing right by and he will testify that I'm telling the truth. But the response to the gospel, for the response to the gospel is very much along the lines of what Christ said in John 16 too, among the Jewish people for the most part. Among the Jewish people, John 16, 2, they shall put you out of their synagogues. Yea, the time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God's service. So being Jewish and going to the Jewish people, there are times when I feel just like the Jewish prophet Jeremiah when he went to the Jewish people and he had had it. And he wrote in Jeremiah 9, 2, Jeremiah 9, 2, all that I had in the wilderness, a lodging place of wayfaring men, that I might leave my people and go from them. For they be all adulterers and assembly of treacherous men. Jeremiah wanted to find that wilderness, and I wish he'd tell me where it is. Where is that wilderness, Jeremiah? Because according to Jeremiah, Jeremiah was eventually stoned to death by his own people. Jeremiah was looking for the wilderness. There's no wilderness. There's no wilderness in this world. 1 Corinthians 5.9 says, 1 Corinthians 5.9 says, I wrote unto you in an epistle not to company with fornicators, yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters, for then must ye needs go out of the world. And Jeremiah did. He found the wilderness, actually. He went out of the world. This was the burden that Habakkuk had, that Habakkuk saw about Israel, and that burden had a purpose, and God had a purpose in showing this burden to Habakkuk, a purpose to generate prayer. In verse two, verse two, Habakkuk, O Lord, how long shall I cry? And if there's no burden 
that a person bears, there's no message from God. Because Habakkuk 1.2, Habakkuk 1.2 says, O Lord, how long shall I cry, and thou will not hear, even cry out unto thee of violence, and thou will not save. That's a burden, a burden that generates tears. If there's no burden, there's no prayer. If there's no tears, there's no prayer. In verse one, when Habakkuk introduces himself, he, does, he has no interest in us taking an interest in him. He gives no information about what tribe he is from, about who his father was, about which family he came from. He says nothing about himself in verse one except Habakkuk the prophet, that's it. And then, and he is a prophet because he has a burden. He is a prophet because he has a message. He, has a, he is a prophet because he has his message with tears. That's what makes him a prophet. And he launches into this deep burden that he saw. And this is what makes a prophet a prophet, a burden. A burden, a message that is coming from a burden that he has to deliver. Habakkuk has to deliver. That's what the gospel message is. It's a burden. It's a deep burden that burns inside until it's preached. The burden comes from a healthy look at hell. That's what he was looking at, the violence, the terrible. The burden for the gospel comes from a healthy look at hell that is for those who don't come to Christ through the gospel. And this makes the burden that which Paul described in, in 1 Corinthians 9.16, 1 Corinthians 9.16, when he said, for though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of. Necessity is laid upon me. Yea, woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. So in this book, in this first chapter here, in these first four verses of this chapter are the prayer of Habakkuk. Habakkuk is speaking in the first four verses, and they are like many prayers in our lives. Habakkuk is experiencing this. Many prayers in our lives where we pray and we receive no answer, and we pray and we get no response from God, and we pray and God is silent in our prayers, and we say the heavens are brass. And during this time in a prayer with no answer in our lives, during this period, during this time in our lives of prayer and no answer for God, this is like the first four verses of this chapter, chapter one. And we say to God in verse two, we say, oh Lord, how long shall I cry? And thou will not hear. But it all changes in verse five, because now God speaks. In verse five, and the answer finally does come, and God says in verse five, behold, ye among the heathen, and regard, look, he says. So God told Habakkuk what he was going to do, and he's going to, he says he's going to bring a very terrible time on the Jews. And he says, he says, he says to Habakkuk, if I tell you, you won't believe it. If someone came in the 1920s, and told how there was going to be a nationalist socialist party. Sounds pretty good. Nationalist socialist party in Germany using the acronym of nationalist socialist as Nazi and that this party was going to build concentration camps that would, that would take millions of Jews there to either gas them to death or to work them to death, the response would be verse five, verse five, you will not believe though it were told you. This was the Chaldeans. 
They did to the Jewish people that, and it was a long time ago, this is also what the Nazis did relatively recently to the Jewish people. They stole the possessions first. They stole the possessions, the lands, the houses of the Jews, as the Chaldeans said, taking dwelling places that were not theirs. How could this be? How could this be? How could a people who were chosen by God to be the chosen people be treated like this? How could the people who were taken by God to be his own covenant people be allowed to be overrun by Chaldeans, by Nazis? How could God's people be so destroyed by Chaldeans and Nazis? How could the Jewish people be so destroyed by the Romans? How could the Jewish people be so destroyed by the Nazis? This is the hardest question that has plagued the Jewish people. The country of Israel is made up of the children of the Holocaust. That's who they are. Israel today are the children of the Holocaust because the, because the immigrants into Israel in 1948 came right from the Holocaust camps into Israel. That's what Israel was, and today they're gone, or going, almost all, and so we have the children of the Holocaust. That's why this question, which is the hardest that has plagued the Jewish people, like I would just want to, how could, how could, how could, has made them come to the conclusion there is no God. The majority of Israelis are atheists because of this question, because of this question. Were the enemies just allowed by God to proceed or was it verse six in Habakkuk one? Was it verse six, lo, I raise up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, which shall march through the breadth of the land to possess the dwelling places that are not theirs. What was it? Was it like I was told when I was in junior high school and went to the Jewish camp, Hess Kramer, and asked the rabbi, where was God in the Holocaust? And the rabbi said, you have to understand God's very busy. He was busy. Or eh, he was allowed it. Or was it verse 6? Was it verse 6? I raise up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, that cruel and hateful. Verse 7 says that their judgment proceeds from themselves, which means that they have no law except their own will, the Chaldeans. They went and did what they did because they wanted to. They want, and what they want made it right for them. They see what they want, and they took it, and because they wanted it, that was their right. That's what it means when God says they have no law except their own will. This is the perfect description of what it means to not have any fear of God, not have any fear of God. When a person says, it's right because I want it, that's the absence of the fear of God. When a person says it's only right if God says it's right, that's the fear of God. That's the fear of God. Our world is moving more and more towards verse seven. Verse seven, their judgment and their dignity proceed of themselves. If they feel they want it, that's all they need to justify getting it. That's the same as saying, my will is my law. So then Habakkuk speaks again to God. 
and it changes. There's a transition in verse 12. Verse 12, art thou not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, mine holy one? We shall not die, O Lord. Thou hast ordained them for judgment, and O mighty God, thou hast established them for correction. Habakkuk goes on, and he says, first of all, let me establish who you are. You are my God. You are my holy one. I'm not speaking to someone abstract out there as in God that I don't know any of that. You are mine, my God and my holy one. And then he says, he says about the, he, first of all, he links himself with the Jewish people. He doesn't isolate himself. He doesn't say them, they, they'll not die. He says, we shall not die, speaking of himself. We shall not die, O Lord. And then he says, the Chaldeans, you've ordained them for judgment but they have been established for correction. He throws this light, this beautiful light on what's happening. What is a person to do when they see all this evil around him? Habakkuk shows us what to do in this transition as he argues for his own Jewish people and calls God the eternal God. And he says, God, my God, mine holy one, Unless a person has Jesus Christ as his own, he cannot have eternal life. He cannot. 1 John 5.12, 1 John 5.12 says, He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. I met a man last week. He came to my house, and he saw a Bible verse on a plaque. And then he said, oh, he looked at it. He said, I've read the Bible twice, he said. And I said, the question is, do you have Jesus Christ? Not have you read the Bible twice. Habakkuk prayed in verse 12, oh Lord, my God, mine holy one. A person can say, I read the Bible, I go to church, but the question is, do you have Jesus Christ? Because Habakkuk prayed in verse 12, oh Lord, my God, mine holy one. A person can say, I received Christ, I prayed to receive Christ, but the question is, do you have Jesus Christ? Because Habakkuk prayed in verse 12, O Lord, my God, mine holy one. And what Habakkuk prayed in verse 12 gets at the most important question in life. Do you have Jesus Christ? And can you pray to him what Habakkuk prayed in verse 12? O Lord, my God, mine holy one. Throughout the Bible, there were people who asked the question, what, what? What do I need to do to go to heaven? There was a rich young ruler who ran to Christ with his what question in, in Matthew 19, 16. Matthew 19, 16. Behold, one came and said unto him, Good master, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? He was sincere. He was earnest. He wanted to know what. There was a lawyer who came to Jesus with the question, what? In Luke 10, 25, Luke 10, 25, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? There was an Ethiopian, an Ethiopian who asked his what question in Acts 8, 36, Acts 8, 36, as they went on their way, they came into a certain water and the eunuch said, here is water, what doth hinder me to be baptized? There was a Philippian jailer who asked his what question in Acts 16.30, Acts 16.30, they brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? All of these questions has one simple answer. 
And the answer is, believe yourself into Christ. Believe into Christ. Believe yourself into Christ. What does that mean? What does that mean to be able to say Habakkuk 1.12, my God, mine Holy One? What does it mean to believe into Christ? To believe yourself into Christ means to make Christ supreme in your life. It means to fully surrender to Christ. It means to hold nothing else as a priority that comes first before Christ. To believe into Christ means to put Jesus Christ first. I have a plaque on my desk. It says, Jesus Christ first. It means to be willing to set aside anything that stands in between Christ and me. To believe into Christ is to say the words of the song, nothing between my soul and the Savior, not of this world's delusive dream. I've renounced all sinful pleasure. Jesus is mine. There's nothing between. Nothing between like worldly pleasure, habits of life, though harmless they seem, must not my heart from him sever. He's my all. There's nothing between. Nothing between my soul and the Savior so that his blessed face may be seen. Nothing preventing the least of his favor. Keep the way clear. Let nothing between. The history in the Bible is so filled with those who wanted eternal life. They wanted heaven. They wanted it. It's a history, but yet there's these histories of what was coming in between that soul and Christ. The history of those in the Bible who wanted to come to Christ is a history of, of Christ identifying what was coming between that person and Christ. Oh, everybody wants, oh, give me a formula, give me a formula. There's no formula. It's Christ, it's a person wanting to come to Christ, and then Christ putting his finger and said, that's in between. And standing there, it's an obstacle. The history of that rich young ruler who dearly, sincerely, fervently wanted to have eternal life, no question about it. He, and Christ identified, and Christ, Christ didn't say, well, all you do is pray this prayer. No, he put his finger on it and he says, that's it right there, right there. It's your money. Matthew 19, 21, Matthew 19, 21. Jesus said unto him, if thou wilt be perfect, go and sell that thou hast and give to the poor and thou shalt have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. When the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful. He had great possessions. It all comes down to one word. It's the word rather. Rather, that rich young ruler needed to say the word rather in this way. I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or land. Yes, I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hand. When he, when he had to choose, when it was set on the line, and there was Jesus on one side, and there was riches on the other side. You know what he said? The wrong rather. He said, I'd rather have riches than Jesus. And that's how his riches blocked him, Obst was the obstacle between him and Christ that Christ pointed out in his life, and Christ is so faithful. He's so faithful to do that. 
When a soul wants to come to him, he will point out the point. He will point out with his finger what's standing between. In that case, it was his riches that blocked that rich young ruler being able to say Habakkuk 1.12. He couldn't say it. He couldn't say it, O Lord, my God, mine holy one. He couldn't say it because he'd rather have riches. Then there was the history of that lawyer who was also very earnest and sincere. And when he was asked what he had to do to inherit eternal life, in Luke 10.25, Luke 10.25, behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Oh, it sounds so good. It sounds so good. We would say, he's so close to the kingdom. We would say, he's ripe for the picking. We would say, he's going to fall right into heaven. It sounded so good. But there was something between his soul and the Savior. And Christ brought that out to light when he told that lawyer, about a wonderful man, oh, a fantastic man, a neighbor in the truest sense of a neighbor, Luke 10, 29, Luke 10, 29. He, willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, who's my neighbor? Jesus answering said, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment, wounded him, departed, leaving him half dead. By chance, there came a certain priest that way, when he saw him, he passed on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he was at that place, came and looked on him and passed by the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion on him. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, set him on his own beast, brought him to an inn, took care of him. And on the morrow when he departed, he took out two pence and gave it to the host and said to him, take care of him. And whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I'll repay thee. And now of these three thinkest thou who, which now of these three thinkest thou was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves. He said, he that showed mercy on him, Jesus said unto him, go and do thou likewise. What stood in the way between that lawyer and Christ was Prejudice, pure, rotten prejudice against Samaritans. That was very, very pointed. You know what that was like? That was like telling a person in Selma, Alabama in the 1950s, if you want to believe yourself into Christ, you got to go love the black people. That's what it was like for this man. And that lawyer was, oh, no, not that. Prejudice stood in between that lawyer and the Savior, and that black blocked that lawyer from being able himself to say, Habakkuk 1.12, O oh Lord, my God, mine holy one. He couldn't do it. He said, I'd rather hold on to my prejudice against the Samaritans than to have Jesus. It was very relevant today. My rabbi friend wrote me, said, I love you, Tom, because you're a Jew. I wouldn't say these things to a person who's not a Jew. I don't love non-Jews. Prejudice. Prejudice. On the surface, they may seem this is this this may seem like a history of responses to this lawyer to three persons, to a, a person uh, in need. A priest, a Levite, a Samaritan. Since there's no Jewish priest today, no one's really sure who's a Levite. Who's not? 
and there's no Samaritan people today. It just may seem like a history today of no real relevance. But this history touches on the greatest relevance for believing into Jesus when looked at from a Jewish perspective. Because the reason is, because this history is about the necessity of turning away from prejudice to come to Jesus Christ. And from a Jewish perspective, the greatest prejudice is not Rachel, racial. The greatest prejudice among the Jewish people today is the prejudice against Jesus Christ. Tom Cantor's messages can be listened to and downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org. For other free resources, email us at tomcantor at friendshipwithgod.org or call us at 800-247-3051. Join our live services on YouTube by searching Friendship with God with Tom Cantor every Sunday at 5.30 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. What are you doing Sunday nights? Come join Friendship with God radio Bible teacher Tom Cantor of the Friendship with God Fellowship Church every Sunday night at 5.30 p.m. at The Vine at 9336 Abraham Way, Santee, California. Watch and listen live around the world to Tom Cantor Sunday evening on YouTube.com by searching for Friendship with God Fellowship or by going to our homepage at friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org. This program is brought to you by Israel Restoration Ministries.